Ahoy crew, and welcome back once again to the latest installment of the Maritime History Podcast. I'm your host, Brandon Huebner, and today we have episode 42, The Delian League versus Persia, Eurymedon. Quickly, before we get into things, I just wanted to say thank you for all of your warm comments over the recent weeks. It has been really amazing to hear how much you all appreciate the podcast and how much you are looking forward to episodes commencing again. I have always wanted to keep the content flowing, but as you know, it it can be difficult at times to keep that happening when things are run by just one person, when it's a one-person show, and as research-intensive as this one can be. The mere fact that you all are so understanding of that and that you're still willing to show up whenever I can get episodes out is very encouraging and humbling, both. So I wanted to say thank you to each of you at the top here for your continued support. One other minor note, and that is just if any odd sounds creep in today, I would suspect that it's the boiler for my house's heating system running on overdrive. It's a balmy 10 degrees below zero Fahrenheit here, where I am, which Google informs me is about 23 degrees below zero Celsius, so it's rather cold. I'm trying to edit all that out on the back end, but advance apologies if that becomes a little more difficult than I have anticipated here. Other than that, let's go ahead and get into things now today. In our last episode, episode 41, we outlined the institution that is most often called the Delian League, especially today that label is used. After Persia's second invasion of Greece failed, Greece had some breathing room to rebuild Athens, or at least to start that effort, and to also re-examine some of the ways that the city-states acted towards one another. Athens had emerged as the naval power, as we've seen, and Sparta had done her duty to lead the Hellenic League in the defense against Persia. Once the dust had all settled, though, Sparta's unique political structure led her to withdraw from the League, which gave Athens room to then seize the reins. The Delian League emerged from that situation, and with this institution, Athens was then able to steer the foreign policy of the Aegean city-states. In last episode, we outlined the differences between the Peloponnesian League, the Hellenic League, and then the Delian League itself, which I think it was important and useful to draw the various distinctions there. We do, though, need to keep in mind that this summary and this comparison is just high level, and today, we are going to zoom in a bit to see how the Delian League interacted with the events that immediately followed the Persian withdrawal. At a one-to-one scale, the events that occurred immediately following Persia's withdrawal did not happen perhaps what we would call in the immediate aftermath. With the expanding scale of history as a factor, though, this decade that followed Salamis immediately, so we could say 480 BCE, to 470, roughly. It's not that long of a time span looking back from our vantage point currently. Then factoring in the availability and the specificity of historical sources, it introduces what I call a slight fudge factor 
The timeline is just not as precise as it could be, but we are going to do our best to put the events in their right order and to just get a good sense of how things would have unfolded for the Delian League and in that immediate aftermath of Persia's withdrawal. So, at the end of last episode, we paused the clock right around 478, 477 BCE, which is not too far removed from the aftermath of the Allied Greek victories at Plataea and Mycale, which both saw the Persians defeated and driven back. We discussed in depth how many Greeks expected a quick Persian retaliation after those battles, and while Sparta was hesitant to remain in her role as the hegemon of the Greek alliance, Athens was not that gun-shy, as we established. Domestic Athenian politics pumped the brakes just enough so that Themistocles couldn't lead that huge offensive that he was rumored to have desired. As we've seen in the unfolding of events after that, once the cities in Ionia then requested assistance from Athens, Athens obliged kindly, and then there were some other events which combined to leave Athens as the only remaining hegemon that had influence in the Aegean and the areas occupied by eastern Greek cities. It was out of this that the Delian League was born. We've seen that the League itself was formally created on the island of Delos in the Aegean Sea, and this same island is where the treasury was also housed at first. We made fairly clear that in the early stages of the League's formation, and then increasingly so over its lifespan, the obvious driving force behind the League and its decisions was Athens and the leadership that she held over the League's members. Now, other than what I said in the introduction here, we haven't really heard the name Themistocles again since the tail end of our prior series of the podcast. It was there that we followed his personal thread through to its conclusion, but I think it bears mention here that in 477 BCE, he was still in Athens and he was still a political leader, actually, but he was not really in military leadership anymore at this point in Athenian and Greek history. That said, as we've seen, Themistocles was a man who was famously wily, ambitious, and driven, I would say. He was also able to win the affections and support of what we might today call the poor and the working classes of Athens. It was for this tendency that some historians call Themistocles a populist. And I guess the label does fit although there is a lot more going on besides just that simple label. Nevertheless, after the war itself had ended and Themistocles was back in domestic politics, uh, without the benefit or the distraction of military glory to prop up his name and his legacy, I guess that depends which perspective you're looking from, well, once he's back in Athens, for him, things begin to sour just a little bit. By 477, by the time he's back in Athens, he has been famous for so long for his exploits before and during the war especially, that some of the working class who had early on and continued to support him, by the time the war is over and people are trying to rebuild and move on, 
Themistocles is uh, beginning to grow slightly unpopular. For the working classes, there is a contingent of them that they've grown tired of hearing his name in the public sphere. That's how the story goes anyways. There's a great anecdote about when he is ostracized from Athens in this vein. I'm sure you can hear it on other podcasts. It's true, though, by this time as well, Themistocles himself had made some choices that did not help his reputation either. But in the end, it becomes clear that some of the conservative factions in Athenian politics, they also just, they had it in for the once great Themistocles. Sparta, of course, supported some of these conservative politicians behind the scenes because Sparta also had no love lost for Themistocles. So it's at this stage in Athenian political history and in the aftermath of the war against Persia that a man named Simon enters our stage. Simon was the son of the Athenian general Miltiades. This general had won fame because of his tactical engineering of Greece's victory at the Battle of Marathon, which had occurred during Persia's first invasion of Greece. Miltiades himself had been a tyrant at an Athenian colony, and then when Persia did invade, he served as a vassal to the Persian king for several years. This was before then he and his family fled back to Athens. With this backstory, perhaps you can imagine, Miltiades was pretty conservative in the context of Athenian politics. He had been a tyrant. He dragged his feet in getting out of Persia's orbit. So once he fled back to Athens, he was not really that thrilled about the rapid democratic reforms that had begun to take Athens by storm. And these reforms had begun to put old-fashioned tyranny, well, out of fashion. Miltiades ended his career, and really his life, in a naval expedition against the Greek Cycladic island of Peros, and this happened in 489 BCE. This was well before the second Persian invasion, but I, I think it's relevant to our discussion. After the Battle of Marathon in the first Persian invasion, Miltiades was apparently so popular that as Herodotus writes it, quote, the Athenians were thrilled to grant his request when he asked them for 70 ships, an army, and some money without revealing against what country he would lead these forces. The story continues that he makes sail for the island of Peros to carry out what was basically a personal vendetta, although he tried to excuse this errand by saying that the island had medized during the Persian invasion and that justified everything he was trying to do to them. He tried to extort them by laying siege to the city, but this siege failed. Miltiades injured himself during the siege, and then when he returned to Athens empty-handed, the true motive for this foray to Peros was revealed. In the fallout, Miltiades was sentenced to death for having deceived Athens, and although that sentence itself was not carried out, he, not that long after, died from gangrene that had developed in the wound he sustained back on Peros. Basically then, a hero, a man who had been a hero in Athens, died an ignoble death after he summarily tarnished his reputation 
that outcome, this whole story, of course, had an impact on his son, Simon. And the impact was that it made it much more difficult for Simon to open doors into Athenian society and politics. The sentence against his father had included some hefty fines which were passed down to Simon. So just in that sense alone, he started his career in the hole, so to speak. He did follow in his father's conservative views, and before long he developed a reputation as acting more like a Spartan than an Athenian in some ways. Plutarch says that, quote, he lacked entirely the Attic cleverness and fluency of speech. In his outward bearing there was much nobility and truthfulness, and the fashion of the man's spirit was rather Peloponnesian, plain, unadorned, and in a great crisis, brave and true. These particular qualities will come into focus again later, but I think it's just a good marker to help us get a sense of how Simon differed from Themistocles, especially as leaders in Athens. Now, some of the conservative land-owning clans in Athens, they worked their schemes in such a way that in 476 BCE, Themistocles was ostracized from the city. We know the ending to his life story. We ran it through in the end of series 2, episode 40 in particular, so I won't rehash it here today. It's interesting, though, to now compare the pieces and to see that right in the same time frame, when Themistocles is being ostracized and when the Delian League is in its very infancy, Simon is also elected to be the Delian League's main commander. And it's here, in the military and the naval side of things, that Simon truly distinguishes himself and he comes into his own as the next big thing in Athens. It maybe shouldn't surprise us that Simon does have a high level of military skill. He did come up in the events surrounding the Battle of Salamis. Although I can't recall if we discussed his role specifically back when we looked at that battle. In short, Simon was from the landed class of Athenian families, and he was fighting as part of the cavalry forces during the second Persian invasion. However, when the debate raged between Themistocles, who was pushing for the stand against Persia to take place there at Salamis, where ships and close confines could be the advantage, and he was pushing against those who wanted to fight the battle at the Isthmus of Corinth, instead. It was written that in that debate, Simon was the first one to understand that Themistocles' proposal was the correct one. Simon was said to have led a band of men up to the Acropolis in Athens, where he dedicated his horse's bridle to a goddess there, which symbolized that he understood that what the city needed then was not knightly prowess, but sea fighters instead. Then, during the Battle of Salamis itself, he also displayed heroism, as it's told. So we can only surmise that he also did this on board a ship somewhere amidst the melee that was the Battle of Salamis. It's an interesting picture to consider his role in that battle against Themistocles' role and how their lives would unfold afterward. That all said, it is now with Themistocles entirely off the scene and with a tested commander leading the Delian League 
and their exploits in the Aegean, that we turn now again to consider what the League actually was doing in the 470s BCE. A lot of the source material for this time frame comes from Thucydides, and it's not really mentioned in other histories to any great degree. His first book in his History of the Peloponnesian War, it's known informally as the Pentacontitia, which that word means the period of 50 years in Greek. It is known by this term because the first book in Thucydides' history is basically an outline of the events of the period that came between the second Persian invasion of Greece, which ended formally in 479 BCE, and then the things that happened before the outbreak of the Peloponnesian War, so formally defined at least, and that outbreak formally happened in 431 BCE. So it's not exactly 50 years, but it's almost 50 years and they aren't described in very great depth elsewhere in ancient history, so we owe a debt to Thucydides for his focus on this time frame. It would of course be nice to have some additional perspectives to help round things out or balance things anyway, but in this case we don't have that luxury. The upshot basically is that early in the life of the Delian League, Simon becomes the military commander. Themistocles is off the scene back in Athens, and quickly, Simon begins to heap up accolades for his military performance. All of these battles are being fought in the name of the League, of course, but they are unsurprisingly battles that prove to be profitable for Athens, and we'll try to flesh that out a bit. The character of Simon's exploits as Delian League military leader they basically fall into two categories. These are either campaigns against Persia or campaigns against other Greek city-states. We'll do our best here to try to sketch out a representative chronology, although it's likely that even Thucydides and Plutarch, who is a secondary source for this period, it's almost sure that they didn't give us all the details either, and that these next few anecdotes are just representative of what would have taken place in the 470s BCE, but I think it's helpful to just draw the categorical lines and to talk about the high-level concepts of what the Delian League was doing. We'll start with our first example here. The first campaign that Thucydides mentions was carried out against Persia's forces that were still in the city of Ion. They controlled the city and the region there. The city had been founded as a colony in Thracian Macedonia, but over time, as Persia expanded, the city there was engulfed by her empire. Now, after the series of defeats that Persia had suffered, she was starting to withdraw, and Simon's charge as leader of the Delian League's forces was basically to help speed up Persia's withdrawal from any area that bordered the Aegean Sea. So, at Ion, in 477-476 BCE, the Persians refused to retreat willingly, even though they had been defeated on the battlefield outside the city. So, as you would do, Simon and his forces laid siege to the city to finish the job. 
because Xerxes still sat on the throne of Persia's empire. And, well, as you might remember, we saw in looking at some of the naval battles from the prior invasion, his commanders might have been terrified to be labeled as a coward by Xerxes. So, the commander at Ion, he took a dramatic exit. When he realized that the city was under siege, that Simon and the Delian League surrounded and he had no escape, he wasn't going to be able to emerge with his life or his dignity. He chose to set fire to the city, and he destroyed with it his family, his treasures, and himself, as Thucydides tells it. The outcome there is that the Delian League retook the city and the region and snuffed out Persia's influence there. The main aim of this type of campaign, because surely there were others besides just this one city alone, the main aim must have been to push Persia back and then to sign up the liberated city in the Delian League. Doing this in a number of cities along the coasts and the area around the coasts of the Aegean Sea, it would have had the dual benefits of one, weakening Persia, but two, also adding another source of contribution or ships to the role of cities that had to make their contribution at Delos each year. The dual benefits here would have been acceptable to everyone when the main target was just Persia and pushing her back. But in time, well, things began to shift a bit. The next outing of the Delian League, as mentioned by Thucydides, is one that is arguably into a third category of campaign, but I'll just describe it here. It was in the Aegean Sea against the island of Skyros, which up to this point in history had apparently maintained a native and independent population. At least, it was native as far as Plutarch and his contemporaries at that time would have defined it. Anyway, Simon and the League attacked and they subjugated the island. They settled their own colony on it, even. The native population which they defeated were called the Delopians. And Plutarch writes, he says that due to their poor income from only farming the land, the Delopians turned to piracy on the high seas, and they even began to rob merchants who tried to deal with them reasonably. Such that when Simon took the island of Skyros, the allies that formed the Delian League, they didn't have any qualms with the fact that Athens and the League had just subjugated an independent population that really didn't have anything to do with the campaign against Persia. The Delian League was just expanding their influence, but because they were putting down a probably irksome pirate issue in that area, well, the members of the League, they were cool with it. There is also a whole side story connected here, where Simon is seeking the grave of the legendary Theseus on the island of Skyros. But there's actually a pretty substantial thread that we could follow on that topic. Simon himself, he made very adept use of the Greek mythology and the myths connected to Theseus, and he used these to help cast the imperial ambitions of Athens in a good light. I think a talk about some of these topics would really be perfect for a member episode, so that's what I have chalked up for the member episode next month. And just a plug here, 
definitely check out the subscriber-only episodes if you are so inclined. I think this next one about Simon and the uh, mythology and the use of the Theseus myth in portraying the naval ambitions of Athens especially, I think it's going to be super fascinating. Back to today, though, and let's now get on into the third type of campaign that Simon and the Delian League would have undertaken. He fought those direct battles against Persia's holdout forces, sure, and he even quelled piracy and he took land from the so-called pirates. But last of all, and perhaps most ominous of all, the Delian League began to harass what we would call their own, basically. There are, of course, gradations of shade within this category, if we're being super nuanced, but I think that would just drag things out much further than we want to. First here, Simon led forces against cities that had not yet joined the League, but who also were not subject to Persia. The example of this type of measure is the one that was taken against Charistus, which was a city on the island of Euboea. The city had not yet joined the Delian League, and they were basically compelled to join the League at the point of a spear that was brought to the island thanks to the Delian League's navy. I think a quote from Donald Kagan here is pretty sufficient to describe the significance. He writes, quote, Apart from the unpopularity of the Medizing Charistans, there were other reasons for the campaign. It would scarcely seem fair that a city should benefit from the League's war against the Persians and its protection from piracy, while allowing its neighbors to bear the cost. The Athenians acted with the support of the League, but the use of compulsion was ominous. Ominous is a good word, simply to describe the feeling. For me, I keep thinking of the Borg of Star Trek fame also. In a sense, the Athenians traversed the Aegean and greeted all holdouts with the phrase, We are the League, you will be assimilated. Resistance is futile. And perhaps such is the nature of all empires. That's a different discussion, though. These campaigns against Persian remnants or against holdout Greek islands took place during each sailing season down through the 470s BCE it appears. Details are a bit scant, but it's not until this next event in 470 BCE that we have a more rough estimate on timing. It was also during the 470s that Simon continued to increase his image in Athens, while at the same time he helped to grow the league and the resources which it could pull at Delos. Then, in 470, a league member rebelled. As is the trend, Thucydides doesn't give us much detail in describing the rebellion, but it is still noteworthy because it's the first example we have of a city or an island that was a League member, but then had misgivings, especially misgivings to this degree. The short quote straight from Thucydides is this, quote, Naxos left the Confederacy and a war ensued and she had to return after a siege. This was the first instance of the Confederacy League being forced to subjugate an allied city, a precedent which was followed by that of the rest in the order which circumstances prescribed. 
Really, this description by Thucydides is pretty straightforward, and it leaves us to speculate a bit more than I would like. Kagan speculates a bit about what this subjugation might have entailed, but thankfully the original historian Thucydides then goes on to elaborate about why Naxos herself might have felt compelled to try and leave the Delian League. We can imagine that subjugating Naxos and the siege against her would have entailed a literal siege of the capital city, and it's possible that Naxos might have had her navy seized and folded into the Delian League or the Athenian navy. Naxos was an island that actually wasn't too far away from Delos, the nominal capital and the home of the League's treasury. But Thucydides then mentions that Naxos was not the only instance of a League member seeking to alter her membership status. So here is his explanation for why membership in the Delian League had begun to taste a bit sour for some of the members by 470 BCE or thereabouts, which, just to check where we are, this is only about eight years into the Delian League's existence. We mentioned at the conclusion of last episode why the League began to feel a bit more like an enforced empire to the members who had joined over the course, and why Athens found herself in the position of emperor, I guess, in a sense. Thucydides writes once again, quote, Of all the causes of defection, that connected with arrears of tribute and vessels, and with failure of service, was chief. So, not a big shocker, really, I guess. The cost imposed on the numerous League members, many of whom were small fries compared to Athens, the cost was just too burdensome. Athens assessed the amount due from each member state each year. And within eight short years, we read that the amount due from these member states, regardless of whether they tried to contribute pure tribute money in the form of gold or silver, or whether they tried to give ships into the League's navy, it didn't matter. The expectations of League membership quickly proved too onerous for a healthy enough contingent of League members that they felt they had to rebel. Now, I can only speculate, but as with most situations where the word empire comes into play, it is entirely possible that Athens was putting a thumb on the scale and expecting more from these members than was perhaps realistic. The end there would, of course, be some profit coming into the control of Athens. But it's also possible, in my view, simply that the costs of a far-flung naval empire might have been more than Athens could have anticipated or known. Even if the second possibility has any ring of truth, it's obviously still not a justification. And there was blame to go around as well, besides. Thucydides goes on to say that in time, the League members found it to be easier to just contribute money rather than to even attempt to contribute ships and men, just because of the cost disparity between those two options. All of these things as a factor then, the power balance began to skew in favor of Athens rapidly. She quickly had control of almost all of the ships in the League's navy, and she had so much money flowing in on top of that, despite the League's voting structures, that she found really no obstacle in the way 
when League members needed to be put back in place, like Naxos here in our example. So then, just to briefly recap before we launch into the final item today, we've seen that when Simon was installed as the Delian League's commander, he quickly demonstrated capability on the naval and the military fronts. He took to heart the League's stated purpose of snuffing out any remaining embers of Persia's presence that could hope to influence events or control of events in Greece and their sphere along the western shores of Asia Minor. But once Simon started those campaigns, he found that Greek cities and islands might not be so eager to join the League as had been assumed. A few of them needed encouragement, you might say, and then others needed a backhand to keep them in line, too. I mean, let's just be honest, that's what is happening here. Over the course of time, these more pressure tactic type measures began to tip the scales even further in favor of Athenian Empire than had originally been the case. The League was a league in name and in form, I suppose. But in time, everyone had that feeling that Athens was the one running the empire, basically. So then, our concluding event today can be viewed either positively, if you look from the Athenian perspective, or possibly with a negative tinge, if you look at it from the perspective of any allied league members who might have been looking on their decision to join the league with any degree of regret. The event occurred in 469 BCE, so this is right at about the 10-year mark for the number of years where Simon had been leading the League's military campaigns. He had managed to grow the League's membership dramatically, no thanks to his questionable tactics, but it seems likely that Persia's King Xerxes began to feel a bit threatened by this new force to be reckoned with in the Aegean, the force led by his old nemesis, Athens. Thucydides mentions a battle occurring at Eurymedon River, but he mentions it only in the briefest way. So in this particular case, we have to turn to Plutarch to help fill out the details. Now, the river Eurymedon terminates on the southern shore of Asia Minor, emptying into the Mediterranean in the modern-day Antalya province of Turkey. It's far enough east that the Delian League and the Greek city-states hadn't quite gotten to reassert their influence there. So we read that Xerxes had ordered some type of military and naval buildup centered around Pamphylia, which is the region where the Eurymedon River meets the Mediterranean. We are left to draw our own conclusion, but it seems reasonable to conclude that Persia had finally found some degree of agreement and breathing room enough so that they had rebuilt some measure of naval strength, and they were now seeking to land another blow on Greece if they could manage it. Most likely they would have aimed not to launch a full-scale invasion of Greece as they had done previously, but just to move along the coast of Asia Minor and begin to retake control of some areas where the Delian League maybe had freed cities from Persian control over the 470s BCE. Once the Delian League got word that Persia was beginning to build up again, we read that Simon sets sail with 200 triremes. 
Now, there is an issue where he attacks the territory of Phasilus. It's a Greek territory in Asia Minor, and he does this because they refuse to let his armada land in their territory. Maybe the Delian League's reputation had preceded it. But as you can imagine, the strength of a 200-strong trireme fleet was a bit influential. There's more to this story, but I'm more focused today on the fact that Plutarch shares about some advancements that had been made in the construction and the outfitting of triremes. Advancements that happened between the Battle of Salamis and then this campaign that is described at Eurymedon. The Battle of Salamis was fought in 480 BCE, and we're now looking at 469 BCE, so only 11 years difference, roughly. Here is what Plutarch tells us in his Parallel Lives about Simon's trireme fleet. He writes, quote, These vessels had been, from the very beginning, very well constructed for speed and maneuvering by Themistocles, but Simon now made them broader and put bridges between their decks, in order that with their numerous hoplites they might be more effective in their onsets. Essentially, what we read here is that Simon and Athens had been able to stretch the service lifespan of at least some of these triremes for up to ten years. So it's possible that some of them had actually fought at the Battle of Salamis, and then in the ensuing seasonal campaigns around the Aegean. Originally, they had been built for maneuverability, and they may have been constructed with a narrower beam, as they were purpose-built by Themistocles prior to the Battle of Salamis. But Simon apparently widened the beam of these ships in order to give them a bit more stability, we presume. But then he also added more decking on top of the triremes. Um, decking, which, you know, we're obviously left to assume was not there at any time prior. Added decking would obviously add to the weight of the ship, but in this case, it allowed Simon's fleet to add more marines to each ship too, which is an important piece if they planned to do much close quarters fighting, or if they planned on the need to have more trained men available for fighting on land, should that become necessary. In that sense, it added a bit more versatility to the fleet's overall options, their abilities. There is something known as the Decree of Themistocles, which is associated with the Battle of Salamis and the formal appointment of men to the Athenian trireme fleet there. Looking at this decree helps give us an idea about when the triremes were in their lighter, narrower ship form focused on ramming ability in the tight confines of the Salamis Strait, and the contingents of men that would have been assigned to the ships that were in that configuration. When the ships were narrower and lighter, and they did not have this added decking, each ship was assigned ten marines and four archers. There are other sources that reference the naval battle at Laude, for example, and these indicate that in other situations, a trireme could carry up to 40 marines. So I think it's entirely reasonable to estimate that for this battle we're talking about today at Eurymedon River, with a trireme fleet 200 strong, the fleet of Simon, it could have been carrying at least 5,000 hoplite marines, if we give that estimated 40 marines per ship and the extra decking there to give them all 
you know, room to be effective. I also find it interesting to note that in a study done by Morrison and Coates in their indispensable book called The Athenian Trireme, and do go find a copy of that if you're interested in this whole era and discussion. In that book, Morrison and Coates state that 10 to 15 years of service is about the time that you would expect that a trireme would begin to age out, so to speak. So it's not necessarily surprising that Simon chose to sacrifice the lightness and the agility that the ships may have had early in their lifespans for, in this case today, adding decking, probably decreased maneuverability, but higher numbers of troops, marines on board, and added ability to transport men and supplies. It's in this way that he basically turned the triremes into troop transports. And we see in other instances from this era of ancient history, older ships that had lost their peak effectiveness as attack ships per se, like at Salamis where they were doing ramming maneuvers. Once they get older, they lose their peak effectiveness. They were turned into horse transports in some cases. So here it's possible that Simon turned his trireme fleet into a marine transport fleet. Now though, after we've looked at that development, let's go now to look at the battle that happened. It's really actually a double battle if we're going to be technical, but um, we'll see why that is today. Plutarch tells us that the Persian commander was not himself particularly eager to fight the Greeks. He probably had seen the fate of many commanders in line before him, and really I can't blame the guy. He was at Eurymedon, apparently also waiting for an additional 80 Phoenician ships to join his forces. These ships were supposed to be sailing north from the island of Cyprus to meet up with him and his forces on Asia Minor. Somehow, Simon and the League got wind that this Phoenician fleet was sailing to meet up with Persia's forces at the Eurymedon River, and Simon hastened his timing to make sure that he could arrive at Eurymedon before any of the reinforcing Phoenician ships could join Persia's ranks. It seems like Simon succeeded, because Plutarch tells us that, quote, at first the Persians put into the river that they might not be forced to fight. And I can't help but think here, surely visions of Salamis and Mount Mycale floated before Persia's eyes. Plutarch goes on, though, quote, but when the Athenians bore down on them there, they then sailed out to meet them. They had 600 ships, according to Phanodemus, 350 according to Ephorus. Whatever the number, nothing was achieved by them on the water which was worthy of such a force, but they straightway put about and made shore, where the foremost of them abandoned their ships and fled for refuge to the infantry, which was drawn up nearby. Those who were overtaken were destroyed with their ships. Whereby, also, it is plain that the barbarian ships which went into action were very numerous indeed, since, though many, of course, made their escape, and many were destroyed, still two hundred more were captured by the Athenians. Basically, what we just heard was another rout of a Persian fleet along with the land forces that it was supporting. 
the fact that Persia's ships first fled for shelter in the river's mouth, but then decided to give battle to the Greeks after all, only to turn and flee again once they started to lose, that is pretty telling to me that Persia's forces, they just lacked confidence against the Greek fleet that had already bested them multiple times previously. The battle then played out in a similar fashion to the battle that occurred at Mycale. The Greek ships followed the fleeing Persians, picking off however many ships they could on the way toward the beach. But we also read that the Greeks captured a fair number of Persian ships. Once they made landfall, they disembarked and formed up to bring a land battle against the Persian infantry and the sheltering marines and sailors. Here, the superior armor and skill of Greece's hoplites that had hitched a ride on Simon's trireme fleet proved useful, and the Greeks quickly routed Persia's army, overrunning the camp and completing their victory. Now, to call back to how I said that this was actually a double battle, let's now finish out the story. Winning a battle that started on the sea and then coasted into the beach was not enough for Simon on this day, it would seem. Remember how the Persians who had set up at Eurymedon were waiting for a reinforcement of 80 Phoenician ships? Simon got word from a scout somewhere that the 80 Phoenician triremes realized that they were too late and that they were cut off from the forces that they were going to reinforce, and that this Phoenician fleet put into shore somewhere en route. Since, though, they were unaware of how the battle itself had ultimately panned out, they knew only that Greece got there first, Simon decided that the day was young still, and that he had the element of surprise on his side and he wanted to put it to good use. Now, we don't have very much detail in the ancient sources, but Plutarch does tell us, quote, They were panic-stricken at his attack and lost all their ships. Most of their crews were destroyed with the ships. This exploit so humbled the purpose of the king that he made the terms of that notorious peace by which he was to keep away from the Hellenic seacoast, as far as a horse could travel in a day, and was not to sail west of the Cyanian and the Caledonian Isles with armored ships of war. So, the victory that Simon and the Delian League won at the Eurymedon River a double battle, one victory on land and one at sea in a single day. This victory was so decisive against Persia's power in Asia Minor that Xerxes was forced to agree to peace terms which forbade him from coming within a day's ride of any sea coast. I do have to note here that modern scholars tend to scrutinize the timeline and they have pretty good arguments for why they think this peace agreement that's referenced probably came later and may not have been purely instigated by defeat at Eurymedon. But for our discussion today, I think the overarching point is that by being defeated at Eurymedon, Persia was dealt another heavy blow, and this time it occurred closer to their own homeland than it did to Greece proper, even. Or, I mean, maybe if we're being fair, it was halfway in between each. But it's certainly the battle that occurred furthest away from mainland Greece so far in all the battles we've looked at between Greece and Persia. What this tells us 
is that the Delian League had solidified its influence over the Aegean and over Greek colonial holdings, so much so that Persia was effectively not much of a threat. It didn't take long, though, for some of the Delian League members to notice this reality and to start asking tough questions about the League's continuing purpose. If its stated goal, as was formally held forth when it was created and throughout its existence, was just to oppose Persia. If Persia wasn't a threat, what's the League for then? The answer to this question obviously also had implications for the stringent tribute requirements that the League members were still being saddled with. Many of them were still happy to maintain the arrangement, of course, but the camp of dissenters and question-askers was starting to grow and to get a bit more vocal. We're going to pick up this thread next time around, but for today I want to introduce one more person to our historical stage, someone who you no doubt have heard of and who we will get to know better in upcoming episodes. Back in Athens in 472 BCE, a man named Pericles financed the first production of Aeschylus's play, The Persians. We have encountered a few scenes and passages from this play already specifically those that deal with the gory scenes of the Battle of Salamis and the carnage that was wrought there as triremes clashed in the narrow strait. I love these scenes because the playwright Aeschylus was himself present and fighting at the Battle of Salamis, so they are probably the closest perspective we have of what involvement in that battle and that scene would have actually been like. That isn't the point, though. The play dealt with the battle and the Persian personalities specifically, casting Xerxes as the arrogant ruler who invited the displeasure of the gods for thinking himself great enough to try and conquer Greece. The play from Aeschylus, coming nearly eight years after the victory at Salamis itself, roughly coincided with the waning days of Themistocles in Athens. His rivals had started to close in, Simon, the general of the Delian League, among them. Those leaders were the conservatives and elites of Athenian politics, who were seeking to stifle democratic tendencies that men like Themistocles and institutions like his navy had encouraged. So, onto the scene then in 472 emerges Pericles. By financing the production of this play, the Persians, Pericles was signaling that he was also wealthy and that he wanted Athens to take note. Now, taking on this role of financing the production of a play, it was actually a duty for wealthy citizens of Athens. But there were also competitions where the plays were put on at a festival and then a winner was chosen at the end. So bragging rights were also at stake. Not to mention the public message that could be sent depending on the substance of which play or production was chosen. When Pericles financed the production of this play about the Persians and about the Greek victory at Salamis, he was pretty young. He was only 23 years old. But by choosing that particular play, he was also signaling support for Themistocles and for his legacy. And this even though Pericles knew that the sharks were circling around the once great naval leader of Athens. 
as we know, Themistocles is going to be ostracized not long afterwards, only a few years. And Simon himself was by 472 BCE firmly in his place as the military leader of the Delian League. He had more victories to come after 472, as we've outlined today. All the time, as those victories kept stacking up all the way down through Eurymedon and even afterward, back in Athens, Pericles was biding his time and building up the Democratic Party in Athens while the Delian League continued to deal with its own issues scattered throughout the Aegean and really the wider Mediterranean. And it's there we're going to pick up next time. That does it for our episode today, and I hope that you enjoyed it. Join us next time, though, as we continue following the Delian League's evolution. As I outlined, various members are going to grow more skeptical of their place in the League, which, you know, leads to some events you can perhaps predict. The word rebellion is thrown around often, we'll put it that way. Then, we are going to follow the League in what maybe will feel like a bit of a detour, back down to the land of Egypt, where we haven't been for a while now. There, we will actually witness an Athenian naval fleet sailing up the Nile River and participating in a war there. And at the same time, Athens is fighting the opening direct battles against Sparta and Sparta's allies, battles that we know as being part of the First Peloponnesian War. So there are a lot of moving pieces coming into view for us now, and I'm going to do my best to arrange them in a sensible way. If that ultimately means separate episodes for each front, then perhaps we will take that angle, but I'm not quite sure how it's all going to pan out yet, so tune in next episode to find out what course we chart. Thank you so much for listening, crew, as always. I have just a few parting words today, and I will keep it brief. First, I just wanted to invite any of you interested to join the newly created Discord server that I have set up. I'll be hanging out there from time to time, and it would be awesome to grow a community of people who want to discuss anything and everything maritime and naval history. Now, I had never used Discord before, even though I've heard of it, but uh, I am quite familiar with the idea of an internet forum and how the old school ones used to work and still do work in some places. I saw Wesley Livesey set one up for his crowd, over at the History of the Second World War podcast. And I got to know him and his awesome podcasting efforts through the History of the Great War podcast. Setting up a community like that looked really cool. It seems like a great idea. And the more I looked into it, Discord seems like a great place where we can set up various channels and subtopics, lots of other bells and whistles that the modern internet has whipped up over time. And it would be a good place to just get some community and conversation going, and it can evolve as we grow. There's a link for it on the website. Do come check it out if that sounds interesting to you. The second piece of info today is that I am continuing member bonus episodes each month, and that we have bonus content available if you're interested. Uh, I have the requisite Patreon profile set up, but I now also have the bonus episodes directly on Apple Podcasts, too. You can subscribe to what is a premium feed, basically, for a pretty nominal monthly amount, 
and you'll have those bonus episodes enabled right in the same feed in Apple Podcasts that you already use. So go check that out again if that sounds interesting. But as always, a simple review on any podcast platform is also really helpful. And if that's the only thing you're interested in doing and you're willing, that would be immensely appreciated. Last thing today, I would like to begin a once per month side series where we discuss a recurring theme or a topic on the same day each month, basically. I have a few ideas, but I'd really love to hear what any of you might also be interested in. So look us up on social media or email and just lend your voice to vote, basically. I have a few ideas that I'm mulling over. I'm thinking that perhaps we could take a nautical phrase or term that is still used in popular language today, but which people may not fully appreciate how it's actually tied and grew out of seafaring culture. Those types of things have always fascinated me, how prevalent they are in modern language. Another option is to just consider one shipwreck each month, either looking at the story of the ship and how it was lost, perhaps a nautical archaeology angle, or even both or more. The last option that I've always considered involves nautical fiction more than real-life history, but I think that the well-loved Aubrey Maturin series of novels are more a cross of fiction and history both, honestly. They're well known for that. So my last thought is that each month we could tackle one chapter from the novel, or from the series of novels, starting with book one, chapter one, and work our way through the series, just considering the history behind them, the ships that make appearances, the sea battles, even stuff like the naval structure and politics of Britain at that time, and everything else. So those are three options that I have in mind now, but there are others that people have proposed that sound intriguing, and I'm sure there are more that you all will share. Any feedback on those ideas would be amazing, and I thank you all in advance. Not to mention, again, my thanks for everyone who has already shared their vote and idea. Thanks again for listening, crew. That does it for me today, and I'll meet you back here next time. Until then, fair winds and following seas from me here at the Maritime History Podcast.